0: Y'all love it. So yeah
1: Hello, welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Timebox and Begging. I've got drummer John Holsey here, a drummer for, for so many great tracks. Obviously, Timebox, Pato, The Ruttles, but also on sessions. Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast, John.
2: Thank you very much.
1: No, thank you. It's uh, such a pleasure to talk to you. And what we'll be doing is going back to the 60s and then slowly working our way towards the present day. I wanted to go in with one of the relatively early hits that you had this time. How was Timebox formed?
2: Well, there was a band that was called Timebox, which is... Oh, dear. Anyway, yeah, they came down from Southport down to London after a week... No, after a season, a summer season in Skegness, Butlin's Holiday Camp. They did a summer season there, yeah. playing for the holidaymakers. And then they decided to come down to London to seek their fortunes, more or less. And it was very, very hard going for them. And uh, the drummer, Jeff Dean, got contracted TV, um, had to go back to Southport. And they picked up with a guy called Laurie J. And Laurie J. became their manager. And Laurie Jay was originally a drummer. And then before he passed away a couple of years ago, he was actually um, Shirley Bass's manager. Oh. And then somewhere in the middle, he managed Timebox. And uh, he got in touch with me. I was in a band, I will only say this once, Jason, <laughs> yeah, yeah. as Orioles.
1: What was that?
2: Yeah, I knew you'd say that. Everybody does. <laughs> I was in a, <laughs> I was in a band called Felder's Orioles.
1: Ooh, very sixties.
2: We were like one of these sort of Zoot Money right. big roll band and Georgie Fame band with a Hammond organist who sung, a couple of saxophones, a guitar, bass, and drums, and we used to do soul music.
3: Yeah,
2: and uh, we used to play at all the right gigs: Clutes, Clique and and uh, the Ram Jam and the Flamingo Club and all that. Anyway, that band, we were together for about three years and we released three records on the Pie Piccadilly label yeah. produced by John Schroeder. And that band, when we all decided after a few years to turn pro, only lasted a few weeks and we, everybody went back to work except for Paul, <laughs> <laughs> everybody except for Paul, the guitar player. Who went on to work with um, Engelbert Amperdink and mm. John Rawls and Tom Jones and Three Degrees and people like that? And he was in the hair band, he used to sit up on stage. And, um, and I decided to chance my armor carrying on being a drummer professionally. So advertising the melody maker, I got a phone call from Laurie Jay, their manager, as I said, from Timebox. And I went down to the Scottish St. James where they were playing one night with my grooviest gear on and my best kipper tie <laughs> and, um, and sat in with the band and I played terribly. I was so bloody nervous. And, um, I was, after that, I played, I played about three or four songs with the band. And then the next day, I got a phone call from Laurie J saying that they wanted me to join the band and that they'd be picking me up later on that afternoon to play at um, Laganheath at the um, United States Air Force Base mm. in Laganheath. And we we turned up there, and uh, the rest is, um, I don't know if it's history or, or historical or hysterical, hmm. but anyway, the rest went on from there.
1: So how long was it before you, you got into the charts with Begging then? Was it a, a year or so?
2: No, oh, I can't really recall. It wasn't that long, because... Hmm. What we decided to do when we realised the band was going to be as it was, we were working. This might seem unbelievable to people who are in the groups these days. We were working seven nights a week. <laughs> we were playing American air bases, the Marquee, hatchet Scottish St James, um, the Cromwellian, more American air bases, College Geeks. We were just working all the time, and we sort of cut our teeth on that really, and the band became pretty proficient band in no time at all and we were sort of um in those days it was expected that a band had to write their own material mm. um we weren't doing that we were doing other people's materials begging was a b-side of a four seasons song uh, that somebody in the band picked up and we um, started playing it on gigs mm. and then when we went into the studio we recorded a load of these songs. One was Begging. One was Come On Up by the Young Rascals. Yeah. Um, and there was a few songs we recorded. And uh, Begging was the one that captured everybody's imagination. Then they put strings on it, and they put percussion on it, and they put quite a large band on it, really. Yeah. And that was all That was all arranged by a guy called Mike Hurst. Ah. And Mike Hurst was... Um, guitar player in the Manfred Man Band. Who's that,
1: Mike Vickers?
2: Mike Vickers, thank you for that. And Mike Vickers then decided he, he was going to do the arrangement on this. And it was his first consignment. It was his first oh. job he ever had to do an arrangement. And he did the arrangement. And it ended up being a really good record. Occasionally, I hear it now, occasionally it's played on Radio 2 or something like that. And I I listened and think, yeah, that's pretty good.
1: Yeah, it's a bit of a sort of Northern Soul standard now.
2: Well, it is, yeah, and we had um, backing vocals done by Kiki D and Madeline Bell. Very good record.
1: The range of material for Timebox, certainly recorded material, was quite disparate at the time. Begging, you had things like bake jam roll. <laughs> yeah, was the identity of the group more varied in the recording studio than than live?
2: No, no, we hardly spent any time in the recording studio. Right. In those days, you got booked to do a recording, and the producer wanted you because of the expense involved. Yeah. The record label wanted you in and out in no time at all. Yeah. So, we, you know, we didn't do any of that. What it was, they were. A lot of those things were were our first attempts of uh writing our own material because in those days it was important to be a writer performer yeah. and all the groups every group was writing its own material you still have performers like you know cliff richard and elvis and uh, that they're, they're not writers yeah. but in those days once the beatles really got a foothold and everything it was really expected. You wouldn't. They wouldn't even consider giving you a record deal if you didn't write your own, own material. So
1: one of my favourite Timebox tracks is a, a B-side, Poor Little Heartbreaker. I think Ollie was involved in Yeah, it. That's a really good track.
2: Yeah, it is a good track. Somebody said, a friend of mine, or well, a friend of the band, Tim Inkley, who, who's um, suffering with quite bad health at the moment, mm. over there in Nashville, he said he could imagine the four seasons uh, no, not the Four Seasons, the Four Tops. Yeah. He said, He said that is a Four Tops track. He said, you really ought to try and get it to the Four Tops. And I can hear it. I can actually hear it, hear him singing it in a way.
1: Yeah, it's got a real sort of driving force to it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: kind box kind of evolved into pato is that what happened
2: well it did yeah because the sort of progressive music scene started to come into popularity really the progressive music scene came along and uh, we were sort of leaning in that direction we were getting more and more jazz orientated really yeah and uh, that sort of suited us and Ollie and Mike, who did most of the writing, they were pretty keen on this sort of progressive music scene and weird time signatures and all that sort of thing. So we sort of, we went in that direction, really. Eventually, Kevin Fogarty, the guitarist, left, um, and Chris Holmes, the keyboards player, left, and just left um, Ollie playing guitar, Clive playing bass, and me on drums, and Mike Pato out front singing. Right. That was like a four-piece. And uh, with Ollie's incredible bloody guitar playing, mm. we sort of went on from there, really.
1: Yeah, and Pato, a band now that are still... Uh, revered and remembered and there's a new collection of live material out on uh, think like a key so yeah. next we've got the man which was from that think like a key collection and that's jazz yeah and that's the man from a, a beat club session all the way back in january 1971 was it a similar sort of thing with pato in that you were mainly a, a live band and, and going out and yeah. in shows then
2: well we were a live band yeah Obviously, we weren't playing. We weren't playing sort of any gigs where people were expected to dance anymore.
1: No,
2: respect. We weren't doing them sort of gigs anymore. But we were playing the marquee. We were doing college, university gigs, and we had our own little circuit: Black Swan in Sheffield, the Torrance and in London. And we were still working a lot, but we were interested in in really playing unusual things, playing anything that was unusual. I said to Ollie one day, right, if I play four bars of five four, right, that is four bars of five four is 20 crotchets. If you play five bars of four four, that is 20 crotchets. So (laughs) if we both start off on the same beat, we should end up after me playing (laughs) four bars of five and you playing five bars of four. We should end up at the same point. Wow. And that is how we develop the man, which is what the verse is. Ollie plays in 4-4, and Clive and I play in 5-4. <laughs> and what Mike does, I don't know, It somehow he fitted words in over the top. And that's how that happened. That was sort of from from an idea I had. It was more of a mathematical problem than a musical one, really.
1: The music scene shifted really, really quickly from a lot of soul in the, the mid sixties to pop and psychedelia, I guess. You get into the early seventies, things were more long haired, progressive, yeah. Experimental, long form, I guess.
2: Yeah, well I thought I thought that was a a good stage of English rock and roll and sort of you know, with bands like Yes and E L P and yeah. and all those sort of but I thought that was a and Gong, whoever they were, <laughs> I thought that was a good point of uh, a good stage of English sort of rock and roll. And then, and then, what came along after that? It was like pub rock, really, wasn't it? Yeah,
3: yeah.
2: Curzel Flyers and that sort of yeah. that sort of band. And that's when I joined a band. I mean, Pato, we we're all in the studio one day. And we were cutting tracks or trying to cut tracks for our fourth album. Yeah. and um. Ollie took, took his guitar off and just said, I can't do this anymore. And he put his guitar away in its case, walked out of the studio, and that was the end of the band. Mm. So he got to be in his bonnet. Mike, Mike was writing more songs without him, and he obviously got in a bit of a strop, walked out, and that was it. That was the end of the band. And Muff Winwood, the record producer we had, said, uh, well, without Ollie, you haven't got a band, really. He's like the sort of front. He's what people are interested in, really, which I could appreciate. Yeah. Uh, we could have gone on with another guitarist, I think. Yeah. But um, nothing. We were all so gobsmacked. So we said to Muff, can we go and finish the album? And he said, well, you can, but I don't want nothing to do with it. Gosh. So uh, Mike and Clive and I went in the studio on a very short time period and finished the album. And then that was played to Chris Blackwell at Island Records, who said, no, he didn't want to know. He said, things have changed, you know, they were getting in, Island were getting into Roxy music and things like that. Mm. He said, no, no, not for me. But we did, we did have some rough demos, which were never finished because what happened was Ollie, Ollie wasn't playing properly. He wasn't cooperating on the tracks. And a lot of the tracks, you can hear him squeaking away with a bottleneck in the background. And we we got in Mel Collins, who was a friend of the band. And Mel Collins is a tenor player. who was ended up in King Crimson and people like that, and um, yeah, and things like. And anyway, Mel Mel put some arrangements to it, and we put brass arrangements over the top of it. Tried to salvage it, but they still didn't want to know. And eventually, somebody got hold of the rough demos. And to cut a long story short, the, the, the demos eventually came out, and they're now available on um, on Cherry Red Records, and that's called it's called Monkey's Bum. And all they are really, some of them are like almost finished tracks with rough mixes, that some of them needed rethinking. Yeah, but it's it's still representative of what we were doing at that time.
1: Our final Pato track today is is actually the from the second Pato album, Hold Your Fire. You, you, point your finger.
2: You, you, you point your finger, yeah.
1: You, <laughs> you, point your finger. That's it. That was one of the more straightforward tracks, I think, off that album, because you you were getting quite experimental on that second album, weren't you?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah we were getting experimental. A lot of it was um, a lot of influence of Mike and Ollie. I must say, at that time, it wasn't really my cup of tea. Yeah. But I I went along with it, and I was in the band, and we we were sort of fairly convinced what we were doing was right, and that's the way we should go. Um, A lot of it was not really my sort of thing, all that. I'm not sure about, I'm not sure, when I listen to it now, I'm really not sure about a lot of it. But You, You Point Your Finger was all about Mike Passo's (laughs) father-in-law.
0: Swear that I'm insane. You you smell my freedom, makes you squirm because I smile. Time will surely come keep the man say
1: a pato but we have a trio of tracks now of other artists that you played with and the first one is a bit of a stonker really here but we've got Lou Reed from the album Transformer and you played on a range of tracks from that album and one of the obvious choices from that album is Perfect Day so how did you get involved playing on that album at the time?
2: Uh, I was rehearsing with uh, a couple of Canadian guys at a place called Defender Soundhouse, which is in Tottenham Court Road, and we'd like had a we were putting this band together, and they were called Druick and La Ronge and they were really good. Yeah. They're very sort of country influenced, and Mick Ronson was there. He was rehearsing with somebody else, the Spiders and Mars or somebody. So I sort of got to know Mick, and he liked the way I was playing and everything else, and then. One night I was out doing a a dodgy pub gig and David Bowie phoned up and uh, spoke to my wife who thought it was one of my mates mucking about (laughs) and um, he said, oh, tell John, you know, I'd like I'll phone him back. So I sort of waited by the phone the next day. We didn't have an answer phone or anything and there were no mobiles in those days and uh, he phoned back a few weeks later and asked me to go and play on this Lou Reed album. So that's what I did. Turned up at the studio with my drums. I must have still been in pato at that time because uh, I remember our roadie, Johan, taking the drums down there and me and picking me up as well. But it was was, the tracks that I did were all done in two sessions. And I think in those days, a session paid 18 quid, so I got £36 for making that album. (laughs) I don't know how many it sold, But it sold bloody millions, (laughs) I know that. Yeah. It sold on vinyl, it sold on cassette tapes, and it sold on CD. And it's probably still selling.
1: And the rest. So were you recorded with with a band, or were you just putting up, laying down drums?
2: No, no, it was with Klaus Warman, who played bass, and uh, Mick Ronson, and me, and uh, Lou Reed behind some screens in the studio with dark glasses on, with no lights on. I don't can't remember ever seeing him there. He was there somewhere, but he, <laughs> he was in a corner in the dark, yeah. dressed in black.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> he was uh, doing all that. And David Bowie, of course, in the studio, in the control booth in the studio, he was really nice. David Bowie was really nice. Yeah. Very encouraging. And I was very, very nervous. It was the first session I'd ever done for anybody like that, you know. Yeah. And I was very nervous. And I remember when I left after, I started at 12, finished at 6 in the evening. And uh, once we finished, I thought, oh, damn, I could have played so much better. <laughs> but I hadn't been so nervous. Anyway, I did I did what they wanted. They knew what they wanted. And then, of course, it's um, been a massive seller.
1: There's some band, that, where you've got Klaus Forman. Klaus Foreman, uh, yeah. Mick Ronson.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Reed. David Bowie.
2: What's the the rarest phrase used in the English language? I saw Klaus Bormann the other day. It was a really good
1: laugh. (laughs) Serious then?
2: Oh. Oh, God. (laughs) He he was a bit poker faced.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But not David Bowie.
2: David Bowie was absolutely charming. He was a lovely bloke. Yeah, I got on really well with him. Yeah, really nice guy. And Mick Ronson, that uh, I knew slightly from meeting him a few times and that sort of thing. Yeah, and Mick Ronson was a really nice guy.
4: Just a perfect day, drink sangria in the park. Such a perfect day, you just keep me hanging.
1: So next we have another cracking track that you played on. We have Roy Harper, One of Those Days in England, and uh, I'm playing the single version of this one. So you connected with Roy by joining his live band, is that?
2: Yeah, what happened was I was in a band called Grimm's, and that was with Neil Innes and, yeah. and The Scaffold and Zoop Money and Andy Roberts and Dave and all loads of people in this band. It was like a touring show. It was poetry and music and sketches and, and all these different things we used to do. It, it was quite an incredible band. They made an album just before I joined, so I didn't play on that. And they made an album just after I left, so I didn't play on that. Mm. But um, it was great. Grimm's was a great show, really good. And uh, Andy Roberts, I got, on, got very friendly with Andy Roberts. And uh, Andy and Roy have always been bosom buddies. So uh, Roy was in America with a bass player called Dave Cochran, who'd been in um, Sharks with, um, what's his name? Chris Spedding. Chris Spedding. So he he was in America, and um, he found Andy up and said, we're putting this band together to promote my new album. Can you come over and play guitar to do this tour? So Andy said, yeah, and he said, we need a drummer. So... And he phoned me up and said, "Come, come with me. Come and work with Roy Harper." So I did. I put my drums, packed my drums away, mm. put them in, a, put more on an aeroplane, and we went off to Los Angeles. And we rehearsed in Los Angeles. And then, yeah, the record company. Once we once we got all the songs together mm. that Roy had done on this album. I think the album was called HQ. He had. Um, Bill Bruford playing drums on the album, mm. one of my favourite drummers, a really great player. And Bill Bruford did the album, and then we uh, played one night for the people from the record company who came down to the rehearsal room, and they said they didn't like the band. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they sacked me, and they sacked Andy. So we got put on a plane to come home. Mind you, we did do, we did do three nights at the armadillo club in austin in texas um, we were supporting maria maldour which was pretty good she had amos garrett on guitar mm-hmm. and earl palmer on drums the man who invented rock and roll drumming earl palmer playing drums with, with her was just remarkable mm-hmm. and so andy and i got sent packing and then roy had enough of um america and said i'll oh, you know, blow this, I'm going to go home. So he came, he came back to England and phoned me and Andy up and said, let's put the band back together, <laughs> uh, which we did. I was very friendly with Henry McCulloch. Henry made a couple of albums that I played drums on. Yeah. And um, he put the band back together with, with Dave Cochran, Andy, myself, and Henry McCulloch, and a keyboards player called Dave Lawson. And it was a great band, really great band. We were together for about a couple of years, I think doing tours and bits and pieces and nice work if you can get it
5: One of those days in England that you said could never end As I was crashed out living every chance One of those days in England we've been saving up to spend Buying rides on Mother Nature's funny bed joint is cooking in my tree one of those days in england chopping baked beans in my cup please tell me when it matters love i might just want to get out
1: We're going back a few years next to um an album that you played on the Mammoth Special or Mammoth Special and the the title track of that. The band being Did you pronounce it De Cameron?
2: De Cameron, yeah.
1: Yeah. So that was Dave Bell and Johnny Coppin leading the way on that one, wasn't it? Yeah. How did you get involved with Because that? that's kind of a bit more sort of folky, rocky, proggy?
2: Yeah, they they literally phoned me up out of the blue and said we're doing an album we don't use a drummer on stage they were a working band we don't use a drummer on stage but we want to use a drummer in the studio can you come and do some sessions so I went down and did the first album with them yeah and then I think they did a second album and um, that was produced by a guy called Dennis Lind and Dennis Lind was a Nashville guitarist and record producer and songwriter and he's famous for writing burning love for Elvis <laughs> And Dennis Lynn produced this album. And that's how I got to know, got involved with the Cameron. But they'd never ever used a drum on stage. I never did any gigs for them. There's loads loads of bands that I recorded with that I never did any gigs with. And there's loads of bands that I (laughs) did gigs with that I never recorded with.
1: Like Grimms.
2: Like Grimms, Joe Cocker, Zoot Money, uh, Frankie Miller, Chris Jagger, Gaffold. All people I, I worked with yeah. that I never, ever recorded with. And loads of people who I did record with who I never toured with, like Christopher Rainbow, Keith West, Dick Cameron, Alexis Corner, yeah. Maddie Pryor, Joan trading, the Monty Pythons, yeah. the Tiz Was. Tiz <laughs> Was people.
1: <laughs> so you weren't short of um, studio or, or live in, in the 70s then. You must have been quite busy.
2: I was quite busy, yeah, but it did eventually peter out as um, drum machines came into the studios more, Mm -hmm. synthesized drums, where people could sit at home, put the drum part down in in the comfort of their own sitting room while they're watching Coronation Street and turn up at the studio the next day, plug it in, play the drum part and just lay everything else on top. I mean, you know, Phil Collins was doing it and he's a bloody drummer, (laughs) you know. That was the, and that sort of didn't help session players and touring drummers and things like that. I remember saying to Neil Innes one day, How are you getting on, How are you getting on with that drum machine? Because <laughs> he used to write with the drum machine. He said, Oh, the bloody thing's gone wrong. I said, It keeps speeding up and slowing down. It's just like working with a real drummer. <laughs> they could
6: see
5: there was something special about the man. White. The ladies there were careful to treat him right Everyone was running around at his beg and call when they handed him the menu It was everyone, everyone against, against, the against the wall
6: When he ordered the man a special He was up
5: Never seen him before, he was only so tall. People came and crowded the door to so watch you eat and watch you go. Oh, when he ordered the mammoth special, he was up all night. Well there's something special about the mammoth special, something very special.
1: So the Ruttles, so did that come about ultimately through Neil and Rutland weekend television prior to that Grimms and Fatso?
2: Yeah, what happened was was I became very f- firm friends with Neil over the sort of, over about fifty years really through Grimms. Yeah. What happened was there was a when I was at school there was people in my class at school, one was a guy called Peter Rettig who started me playing drums. Another guy was a yeah. Brian Hodson, who was a guitarist and bass player, who ended up, until he passed away last year, he was working with Albert Lee all the time. Anyway, there was um, also Roger Rettig and another guy called Billy Bremner, Scottish guitar player. Yeah. They had a band called Compass, and their drummer left the band to join Status Quo. And so one night, there was a literally a knock on the door, and there they all stood saying, do you want to join a band? So uh, I said, well, I don't know. So they did like country rock sort of thing, like Poco and that sort of thing, Mm. you know. And it was very, very good. It really was good. And these guys were in my class at school. Mm. And uh, so anyway, we went out and did a couple of gigs. And then it went on from there. And um, they said, well, we need to change the name of the band. Don't need to call it Compass anymore. We want to call it Fatso. Because we everybody in the band was, was <laughs> too short for their weight. <laughs> and so uh, we sort of did a, a few weeks of gigging, and then Neil phoned up one day and said, should we go out and have a thrash around the golf course? So I said, Yeah, okay. So I drove down to Lewisham and we were having a round of golf, and he said, What are you doing? I said, Well, I'm in this band, Fatso. He said to him, What are you doing? Oh, nothing, I'm not doing anything. And just really struggling to make ends meet, so uh, I said, "Well, why don't you come and do some gigs with this band? It's a really good band; you'd love it." So uh, we all went round to Neil's house a week or so later and learnt a bunch of Neil's songs. And then the next gig we did, which were, they were near enough all in London, mm-hmm. the Nashville Rooms and um, places like that, you know, or just gigs because it, it, it was pub rock at the time and. Uh, Neil turned up and got up and did his songs with us. And then it sort of went on from there. We we bought our own PA. We bought our own van. We never had a roadie. We used to hump all the gear in ourselves, set it all up, including Neil, doing his share and do our own driving. And um, it went on from there. And then Neil, who was very involved with the Pythons, Eric said to him, you know, I'm going to be putting this TV show together, Rutland Weekend Television. and mm. like, why don't you do a, a song or so every week and we can do a bit of filming to go with it. And so we, we did all the music. We did all the music for the whole series. I think there were two series. Yeah. I'm not sure. We did all the music for both series, Fatso. And we did a few walk-on parts and we did did a few appearances and one of the things Neil wrote was, um, I must be in love, which was mm. his version of a Beatles song, which he called a list song. <laughs> <laughs> am I rich and am I poor? I'm in doubt. I don't you know actually, You know. So we did a bit of filming that went with that. And then Eric took it to America and showed it on Saturday Night Live, which was the biggest TV show over there. With John Belushi on it, and Dan Aykroyd, and Steve Martin, and all these people, mm. and uh, it got this incredible reaction—people phoning up, and people writing in, and sending back Beatles records with Beatles mm. crossed out and Ruttles written in. So he, he showed it. They showed it again a couple of weeks later, and then Lorne Michaels said to Eric, "Why don't we do a, a film like paralleling the?" you know sort of taking the rise out of the Beatles story for the Ruttles, do the Ruttles story so they got in touch with Neil and said can you write 20 more songs in the next hour and uh, <laughs> which took him about a year to do and uh, it went from there really
6: I feel good I feel bad I feel happy I feel sad my I alone? Hey.
1: was made into a a feature film and you were in it a starring role
2: star stage screen and campfire <laughs> took of like power used to say <laughs> yeah yeah it went on to be a film a bit of a cult film really yeah
1: you had the ringo type role
2: I was I was the ringo character yeah Barry Wong. <laughs> yeah I was the ringo character and then from about the year two thousand onwards until Neil Neil died in the year before last, um, we were touring every year, really, doing a tour, yeah. going out. The band was really good. We had various people in the band. It was very, very good.
1: You were the, the Ringo type character. So just like Ringo, you had your own tracks to to sing. So one of your tracks on the sort of original Ruttles album and, and film was Living in Hope.
2: It's a song that I sing, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: I was born in the country. Beside a chicken shack, and I went to the city, and I didn't look back.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, living in hope. And that—that that
1: was a part of the film which I think was associated with um, Barry's wedding. Yeah, night, that's
2: I it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was meant to be. <laughs> I didn't get married in the film in the end because uh, my proposed wife ran off with some <laughs> Scotsman from Hull. <laughs>
6: So I- No.
1: Our next song is Vivian Stanshall. Terry Keeps His Clips On, from Vivian's Teddy Boys Don't Knit yeah. album, I think, from 1981. So the, the obvious connection would be Viv to Neil. Was that how you got involved, or did you, did you know Viv Stanshall?
2: I didn't know him. I met him, there was one night when we were doing a Neil In His and Fatso gig at the Nashville Rooms, and um, we'd done a gig the night before somewhere, And Neil had no voice left. He had a sore throat and uh, he couldn't do the gig. So we thought, well, we can go out and do it as a fatso gig. You know, we can still do the gig because we had our own set of material anyway as a band. Mm. And I phoned up Andy and said, um, why don't you come and do this gig with us? Like, there must be half a dozen songs that Andy knows that, that we can play. So... I went round to pick Andy up to go off to the Nashville rooms in London to do this gig. And Viv was around his house. (laughs) And I met Viv then. And then there was one time when Viv was not well. And John Gorman from the scaffold was staying with my wife and myself. Um, We were like his London parking place. And he was staying over. And um, he said, let's go to the hospital and visit Viv. So we went up to the hospital and saw him, and um, and from then on, we sort of, um, we got on famously, you know, and he, he phoned me up and said, would I go and do some sessions for him, which I did willingly, I was a big fan, you know, and uh, we did these sessions, and then we did a week at the Bloomsbury Theatre, seven nights in a row, with a, with a massive band, it's about, it about a ten-piece band, and that, that was quite amazing as well. There was a time once when Neil was in hospital and he's sitting up in bed and they rung the bell for the visitors to come in like they used to do and all the visitors came pouring in and Neil looked towards the door and there was nobody there for him. So he carried on reading his book and suddenly the whole ward went quiet and he looked towards the door and there was Viv standing there, very really eccentric looking as anything. And... Uh, he had a fully inflated Randy Raquel doll under his arm <laughs> and a Playboy in his hand. He walked, he walked up to Neil's bed and said, there you are, dear boy. And he pulled back the sheets and put the Randy Raquel in bed with him and gave him the Playboy magazine.
0: Hours a day. Any other way? No. Let me tell you why. As his dad would say, to stop those wasps and creepy crafties crawling up your trousers. (laughs) When he mows the grass, protects his private parts.
5: All the wasps can bizarre.
1: You mentioned before the dreaded drum machines came into the uh, mm. industry and eventually you became a publican, didn't you?
2: Well, I did because I was still playing, but I started getting very, very short of work. Mm. I was in my sort of middle to late 30s. I was too old to start joining groups, you know. Mm. And um, the session work was sort of drying up, really. And I was struggling to make a living. And then crash, bang, wallop, I had a bloody car crash. I was a front seat passenger in a car that hit another car head on. And uh, that sort of paid to me, really. I ended up disabled, ended up with my head broken, my hands broken, my leg broken. And uh, Elaine and I, we had a young family. We lost our house and I I couldn't do anything for a couple of years. And uh, so we were desperate for something to do. And our local publicans said to us, you ought to look at the pub trade. And um, that sort of dangled the carrot in front of our noses. And we did. We looked at the pub trade. And yeah, the long and the short of it is, without reading the whole book, um, mm-hmm. yeah, we uh, we went into the pub trade. Yeah, we became publicans. And we did that for 28 years.
1: I think you mentioned this briefly. So you had... Um... There's the Archaeology album in the in the mid-90s. Yeah. Which is a, a few years after the uh, Beatles anthology. So was that the sort of inspiration to um, get some more tracks out for the Ruttles?
2: Well, yeah. What happened was that Virgin Records got in touch with Neil and said, look, the, the Beatles are releasing these uh, these anthology albums. What are the rolls going to do? <laughs> so Neil said, well, we haven't really thought about doing anything. So Eric didn't want to know. That left Neil, Ricky and myself and whoever else we could pick up to join in. And so it was decided we would do an album, which we did, which I thought was fantastic. I thought it was one of the best albums I'd ever been involved with. Neil's songs were just magnificent. Yeah. And the production was magnificent as well. And then Virgin Records said, yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll, re- we'll release this. So it's released, and it was obviously aiming at the American market more than anything. And it was decided to call it Analogy. And said, obviously, they can't call it Anthology. <laughs> so it was called going to be called an Analogy. Yeah. And then the record company said, hold on, American people don't know what an Anthology is. They definitely won't know what an Analogy <laughs> is. Call it Archaeology. <laughs> So it was released on <laughs> called Archaeology. And then just after it was released, we made a video for Shangri-La, which is a fantastic track yeah. that I'd recorded with Neil once before with Fatso yeah. on an on a album that Neil did called Taking, Taking Off. So we did that. And then Virgin Records were then being threatened by Eric Idle and Saturday Night Live saying, you have no right to use the name The Ruttles. And so Virgin Records dropped it like a hot potato. Oh, gosh. And so nothing ever happened to it, but it was... Oh. I think you can still get it if you play your cards right, sort of thing. I've got a copy you can have for a couple of grand. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I've got it as well. Yeah. I think it's got reissued at least once after after the mid-90s. And the, I bought the Shangri-La single upon release as well, so... Yeah. Yeah, there's stuff out there.
2: Yeah, and Eric... Eric He did another Ruttles film with all the outtakes off the cutting room floor. And he got loads and loads of people like Tom Hanks and Bonnie Raitt and loads of people to do like cameo appearances in it. And it was just awful. The film was bloody awful. And in that, he had the audacity to use a load of the music from (laughs) archaeology. After all that. Yeah. Yeah,
1: because... Going back to the, the original film, so even though Ollie played on the tracks, it was Eric who, who was actually in the film?
2: Well, yeah, Eric, Ollie sang the songs, and Eric, well, I call it miming. Eric mimed to them, but I think they call it lip syncing. Lip synchronisation, they call it these days. Yeah. So Eric lip synced all the songs. We had a bass player whose name I can't remember, and I wished, I wished I could remember, but we had a, a great bass player, and Ollie played guitar on it, and Ricky, who is actually a drummer, who played the George Harrison character,
3: yeah.
2: he mimed guitar. So Ollie, Ollie was very featured on the album. He played guitar and did a lot of the vocals. But then when it comes to using Ollie in the film, uh, the production company, which is a, the American company, Decided not to use Ollie because obviously they got to sell the film yeah. on Eric's name. So Eric played the Paul McCartney character and the um, the narrator for the whole film as well. So Ollie and only yeah, Ollie didn't play, appear in the film.
0: Less revealing than a downright lie And did you think your head was hip to certain things It's not equipped to qualify All day long the sky is blue And everyone
3: says how do you do
0: In Shangri-La
3: In Shangri-La In Shangri-La You can be whoever you are In
0: Shangri-La Investment with a good return Provides the means through which we earn our daily bread Insisting on an equal cut something must have to
3: stay up here. Yeah.
1: John, I wanted to get us more up to date, and we have what's titled Barry Warm and Warm Direction. Enough. <laughs>
2: well, this was not my idea. <laughs> we were playing a gig with the Rattles, the last tour we did, or the tour before last that we did. Yeah. Uh, must have been, what was that, 2019, 2018. We did a gig in Liverpool, and Mike Liversley, who fronts up, we did a tour the Christmas before that, and it was a Bonzo Dog Doodah Band tour. And Mike Liversley fronts the whole thing up. He's like a singer, songwriter, larger-than-life character, actor, great impersonator of Tony Hancock and people. He's just a great character, Mike. He lived in Liverpool, and uh, he turned up to the gig. And we're all in the dressing room, and somebody said to me, you ought to make your own album. You ought to make your own album, a Barry Wom album. And I said, oh, no, no, I can't imagine doing anything like that. And Neil said, if you did, what would you call it? I said, enough, (laughs) enough Barry Wom. That's what I'd call it. And then Mike wrote a song called Enough. And then he phoned me up a few months later and said, I've got this song, I'll send it to you. He sent it to me. And he had an arrangement put on it by a mate of his up there, Andy Frazel is a great musician. He teaches flute, guitar. He's in a progressive rock band. He does all these different things. Mm. And he also, Mike knew this guy who's a film cameraman. His documentary, he, wildlife, wildlife film cameraman. He won, he's won a bloody award somewhere for doing his work. And, mm. So anyway, Mike said, look, I've got all these film extras for nothing. I've got the use of a pub for nothing. (laughs) I've got this cameraman for nothing. who will come and do it as a favour because I know him. And I've got all these people. We can make a video to go with the song Enough. So that's what we did. I went up to Liverpool a couple of days and uh, we did this album. Well, not an album. We did a song called Enough that Mike wrote. It's horrible.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You got on the news and uh, it did attract some attention, though.
2: It did, yes. I was surprised, yeah. Yeah, it got on on the news and it did this and did that and, um, yeah, quite amazing, really. Yeah. And also, what I did then was I had some DVDs made with, put the video on and a couple of other bits I put on there that were very, very quickly filmed and also there's a a tune that Mike wrote called Christmas in Bavaria or something. Mm -hmm. They're all shoved on this album And then I did an interview like this with Mike, and that's on there as well. So it's like an hour and a half, two-hour DVD with all this stuff on there. Um, But I sold um, for a fiver on the the tour.
1: Oh, that's fair enough, isn't it?
2: Yeah, fiver each. It gave me something to sign on the gigs and things Mm -hmm. like that.
1: Well, thank you so much for, for talking to me, John. It's been such a pleasure to hear some of the stories behind such incredible music that you've made all this time. Wishing you all the best.
2: Well, thank you, Jason. Nice of you to, to say that. It's Very kind of you. I enjoy doing things like this. I mean, it'd be an unusual person who doesn't, didn't like talking about themselves, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, lovely.
1: All right, take care. All
2: right, bye.
6: a time I was living in hope and any pain that came my way was due to some Scotsman 40 years have passed me by and now I've got nothing to say from Rutland lanes to city trains I never seem to ever get enough enough of my finest People say, What's, What's up? up? I answer Enough, I don't, don't have to smile. smile. And anyway, I, I can't explain. explain. So leave me alone. Love may be the very meaning of life. The very meaning of but how she hurts, right in the shirt, but he's not I may go back to grow old and gray in the country someday. That chicken shack still takes me back. From which he will stray A libertine, but always grin. I scrub away, but never see Enough of my finest hour And every day when people say Hey Barry, what's up?